0: Uh, we are in, going to be in Psalm 27 tonight. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light. Uh, we are going to also be turning to 1 Samuel 22. Uh, I wanted to let you guys know that we uh, recently had been praying about our men's retreat going back up to the place that we're normally at, Running Springs, and you got to have a hundred or more guys to get a specific room, and so we... We had been praying over that number, not that we need a certain number, but that was the number to get a certain room that we wanted. Ironically enough, we had to cancel the men's retreat (laughs) because of COVID. So we we planned to do this uh, retreat or conference here, a one-day conference, and lo and behold, we have probably at least 120 guys coming. (laughs) So uh, that's a blessing, and that just shows us that God is faithful. And uh, tonight, we're going to look at a beautiful psalm. It's one of The more encouraging psalms, and it is a psalm about worship, as all of the psalms really are. It's Psalm 27. I have entitled it, The Lord is My Light, but I could also entitle this, Seeking the Face of God. How do you do that? What does worship really look like? Notice it opens, uh, it it could be called a psalm of trust. Um, It is a psalm of David, as you'll notice, and I want you to notice the, the first verse and then I'm going to tell you what the backdrop may be. The Lord is my light, Psalm 27:1, and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life, whom shall I dread? When evildoers came upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear Though war arise against me in spite of this, I shall be confident. Lord, as we look at this psalm tonight, would you bless your people with confidence, with faith instead of fear. Help us to understand how you're speaking to us tonight, how we can become those who seek your face and are confident in our trust in you and in our God. And we pray that you would speak and your servants would have ears to hear and a heart to obey. In Jesus' name we ask, and all God's people said, amen. amen. Now, if you turn over to your right a little bit, you're going to get to Psalm 56, and I'm going to make a connection really quick. Um, I believe it's Psalm 56, do, 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 maybe it's not, uh, anyway, it's going to, it's going to come to me, maybe it's Psalm 52. It's Psalm fifty-two. Here it is. Just notice the top of it. It says, For the choir director, a maskle of David, when Dog or Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, that is a pretty detailed description, isn't it, of the backdrop of a psalm. And whenever you see the top of a psalm, you're you're gonna get an idea of what inspired the writing, if you will, or what was going on at the time. Now, no less than Spurgeon believes that the backdrop of our psalm, Psalm 27, may be the same incident. So I thought it'd be helpful for you to see the incident, and it's in 1 Samuel chapter 22, First Samuel 22. Now, the backdrop of the story is that David had gone to Ahimelech, and he said that he was on business from the king, i.e. King Saul. That was not the truth. Uh, David was on the run and he ends up getting, being given some holy bread and he's given the sword of Goliath from Ahimelech, the priest. And uh, David doesn't give him the full truth and so he takes care of him. And in the backdrop of the story in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, Dog, this Edomite, happens to be there when this dialogue takes place between David and the priest. The sword is given to him, the bread within the tabernacle is given to him. And here in 1 Samuel 22, we get a little bit more of the story, verse 8. Saul is whining, as he did a lot. He said, For all of you have conspired against me so that that there is no one, 1 Samuel 22, 8, who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. That's David. There is none of you who is sorry for me. And all God's people said, wah, 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 wah. Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent uh, some, someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahatub, and all his father's household, 11, to the priests the priest who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Listen now, son of Ahatub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Saul then said to him, Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Saul was obviously freaked out and nervous and all of that. In that you have given him bread and a sword and inquired inquired of God for him, that he should rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day. Then Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, even the king's son-in-law who is captain over your guard and is honored in your house? Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me, do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of the whole affair. And he was telling the truth. David actually wasn't truthful with him. But the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, Turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to to Doeg, You turn around and attack the priests. And Doeg the Edomite, we might call him Dog the Edomite, turned around and attacked the priests. And he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword. Both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, and sheep. He struck with the edge of the sword. But one son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahatub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. Then David said to Abiathar, I knew on the day when Dog, the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul. And then these fateful words, I have brought about death of every person in your father's household. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. For you are safe with me. This tragic incident where David actually owns what happened, it's refreshing to see a man be a man and actually own his own mistake, even though we could say ultimately David is not responsible, but he did not tell the whole truth to Ahimelech. And then David says these words. I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. You want to talk about something tough to live with? Talk about, you know, reflecting on a moment in your life where you thought you were doing the right thing. And it it amazes me how David takes responsibility back to Psalm 27. No less than Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, believes that Psalm 27 may have the backdrop of what I just read to you and that David wrote what he wrote in the wake of this terrible incident where he felt somewhat responsible, and he says that he was responsible for the death of 85 priests, but not only that, this dog the Edomite went into the city of Nob and killed women and children, and young and old, and it was a brutal, brutal situation. And in the wake of that event, David wrote Psalm 52, as we saw the heading, but maybe as well Psalm 27. And I want you to just be thinking about that to understand that when the psalmist writes some of the psalms, the pain and the anguish and the difficulty behind the writing is something that often gives us a lot more insight than we had before. Now read the opening verse, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? David had spent a lot of his life on the run from Saul, from his own son Absalom, who wanted to kill him and take the throne from his father from men like Dog, who uh, hated him and wanted to kill him. And David, even though he was a warrior and a shepherd, he points to the Lord as his light and his salvation, or his deliverance, and then he says, Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense or the strength, New King James, the stronghold, ESV, NIV, the fortress of my life. Whom shall I dread? Now, sometimes when you see a psalm, the psalmist is asking himself questions, in light of what he knows about God. And I think that we need to do some of this as well. Sometimes we have something that floods our heart, and it's something like this. It's like, I'm afraid, or I realize that this person hates me, or this group of people is after me, or someone's trying to tarnish my name, or someone has it out for me. What should I do? And sometimes we have fear that floods our heart. Fear is a very normal human condition. And fear has been a dominant theme for our culture for at least the last six months. But I'll tell you that there's people who live in fear every day, no matter if there's a COVID outbreak or whatever else may be going on. They are petrified by life. Hebrews chapter 2 says people live in fear of death their whole lives. Fear is a very real human condition. And David had to ask himself, since the Lord is my life, whom shall I fear? The Lord is my light. And my salvation. Now, when the Bible uses an image like light or a metaphor of light, it's good to contrast it with the opposite, which is darkness. And the Bible says in 1 John 1 5 that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. God is light. And light is the opposite of darkness. And the Bible says that God has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son or he's transferred us into his marvelous light. And then the result is that we are to walk as children of light. We are no longer in the darkness, and darkness is a metaphor for the kingdom of darkness and the prince of darkness, Satan himself, and all that that represents. And the metaphor, if you walk it out, Jesus said the religious leaders of his day were hypocrites and they were like blind men leading blind men. And if a blind man leads a blind man, will they not fall into a pit, Jesus said. This is what happens with spiritual darkness. Sometimes we wonder why people can't see, why they can't understand uh, truth and light. And light is a, a metaphor in the Bible for God. God is light for his truth. It also speaks of comfort, love, and hope. So it's a beautiful picture, light in our lives. The Lord, the declaration of the opening, is my light, and notice, it is, He is my salvation. Whenever you see the word salvation in Hebrew, to the best of my knowledge, that will be the word Yeshua, which translates into Greek, Jesus. Jesus is God's salvation. And listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3, and 4. It says these words. It says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. David will say in another place that the Lord illumines my darkness. And it's interesting to think about how your life has changed and my life has changed since the light of the gospel flooded my soul. See, now I can see a lot more things with clarity than I used to be able to see. Light exposes darkness. Now I can see things for what they really are. And there's a lot of people who are blinded by the God of this world. In fact, Isaiah 5, 20 and 21 has been getting a lot of attention these days, but listen to it with the metaphor in mind in our psalm. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. There are people today who call darkness light and they call light darkness. They just don't get it. They have substituted good for evil and evil for good they cannot seem to see the light of the glory of God. In Psalm 4, 6, it says, Many are saying, who will show us any good? And then the psalmist says, Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Light, it arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate to the righteous. When Jesus was walking the planet, he was the light of God, Who had come into our our darkness. In fact, it says, In him was light, and that light was the life of men. John chapter 1. Jesus said, Whoever follows me will not remain in darkness, he will have the light of life. Jesus is the light coming into the world, illumining every person. But some people refuse to come to the light. John chapter 3, Jesus still speaking lest their deeds should be, what? Exposed. They won't come to the light because they know the light of God will expose their darkness. And in order to be ultimately healed, you must come into the light. In order to have sin lose its power in your life, you must put it into the light. You must let God deal with it. In fact, James 5.16 even says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. That can be very difficult. It says of the Lord... He covers himself with light as with a cloak. Psalm 104, verse 2, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. Just like David says, the Lord is my shepherd in Psalm 23. In Psalm 27, he says, the Lord is my light. He leads me. He guides me. He illumines my life. In fact, his word is a lamp to my feet and a light my path, Psalm 119, 105, and the reason why the word of God is light is because it comes from the God who is light. I've told you the story before, but many years ago, we, we had some young boys who were from the African Children's Choir, and we had them stay over at our house, and we had a bunch of host families way back in the day in our church, and the kids were still young, and uh, we had, I think, three boys, three African boys stay at our house. And we got to drive them to a couple places to have ice cream and stuff. And they, they were part of the choir, so they liked to sing. And they were in the back seat of my car, and they broke out into song. He is your light. He is my light. And they started singing in the back of the night, He is your light. And they would call everybody Uncle. Uncle Michael, listen to the song. He is your light. He is my light. And we're all in the car. Oh, yeah, baby. Here we go. And whenever I would drive them somewhere, they would say, Thank you, Uncle Michael, for driving us somewhere and may God richly bless you. And then I looked at my kids and I said, do you see that? (laughs) Do you hear that? They're blessing me wherever I drive them. This is amazing. Anyway. (laughs) I love you guys. You guys are very polite young men. Never mind. Jesus is my light. And because that's true, look at the result. Here's the question that you should ask yourself. If the Lord is your light, if you're saved out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, then whom shall you fear? Or can I put it another way? Why why are you so afraid? If the Lord is your light, if you really believe he's going to write, he's written the beginning, the middle, and the end of the story, why are you so afraid? You know, there's a lot of Christians today that operate their whole lives in fear. And if you let fear immobilize you, then the enemy has you exactly where he wants you. See, I don't have to fear because I know in whom I've trusted. Now, there's times when I'm afraid, certainly. Fear is is an emotion that we deal with, it's a reaction to circumstances. But I think we need to ask ourselves if we believe the first part of verse 1, then we should say, then whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. He's my protection, my stronghold. Whom shall I dread? In the book of Romans, uh, chapter 8, verse 31, it says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that? Do you believe that's true, or do you believe that's just a Bible verse that you quote? (laughs) It's true. But here's where we need the light of God's word to help us when we are being invaded by the darkness of fear, David says, when evildoers came upon me to devour, 1 Peter 5, 8 says the, the uh, devil goes about as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Here David says, evildoers were looking to eat me up or devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies. What happened to them? They stumbled and they fell Though a host encamp against me, and David certainly had that as Saul's army was searching for him and Absalom had an army that would go after him. He said, though I had a whole host, a whole army against me, encamped, ready to battle the next day, if you will, my heart will not fear, though war arise against me. Here's that word against again. In spite of this, what's David say? I shall be confident. One thing I've asked from the Lord, and that I shall seek or seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold or gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to meditate in his temple or his tabernacle. As I was studying this, I was thinking that David, through the power of the Holy Spirit, just gave us a clue as to why he's confident, even in the worst of times, because he moves his gaze off of his circumstances and on to God. I mentioned to you that when we studied the the little exhortation in 1 Thessalonians 5 where it says to pray always or pray without ceasing, I told you that that word in Greek can be defined as a Godward gaze. It doesn't mean that you're not going about your day or driving in your car or doing your work or whatever it may be. But on a deeper level, there's a gaze that is fixed on God. It's, It's a turning your eyes away, and I use eyes in quotes here because it's not always possible to turn away from something, but it's, it's turning your heart to God. Worship, please hear me well. Worship at its root, if you were to break down the definition of worship, it means to draw near to God. Worship is to draw near. When you're not worshiping, you're far away. When you're worshiping, you draw near. And James 4.8 says, when you draw near to God, he will what? He will draw near to you. The essential idea of worship is to draw near. So think about it. Uh, On a Sunday morning, we come together. We have a couple of church services. And the intent of walking into a building like this is not to, uh, you know, check a box or anything like that. It's for us to collectively do what? To draw near to God and to draw near to one another. That's why Corporate worship is so important because if you try to worship uh, through a screen, even though that's helpful, I know we have some people that have joined us tonight, it still can't fully substitute for corporate worship because corporate worship is not only drawing near to God, that's the most important thing. But we come near to one another and we approach the throne of grace. We draw near with boldness to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and help in time of need. And there are people who help us draw near. Uh, God gives us people in our lives that might encourage us. We might have a teacher or a worship leader or a Sunday school teacher. Or maybe we have somebody greet us before we even enter into the sanctuary that helped me draw near. And essentially what they help me do is fix my gaze back on God. Because there's a lot of things that distract us in this world. Amen? (laughs) A lot of things that get our attention. A lot of things that we get consumed by. And worship at its core is to re-fix your gaze on Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of your faith. Amen? Amen. And this is the battle that we have. That's why uh, we've talked a lot about different ways that you can Get yourself in the spirit, so to speak. David's giving us a clue that when we're overwhelmed by fear, when we have difficulty, instead of making a list of all these things that we could do, and we we tend to do that, we we Americans like bullet point lists and we like our plans. But I want you to see in verse four, there's a key phrase, David says one thing. One thing. And I couldn't help but think of the Martha and Mary story that you all know well in Luke chapter 10. Because when Jesus corrects Martha for being all freaked out and mad at her sister and all of that, he said only one thing is necessary, and your sister chose the better part. What was Mary doing? Remember what she was doing? She was at Jesus' feet drinking in his word. See, the the one thing that you need in your life that's really gonna make the difference, really gonna kind of move your heart from fear to faith is worship. And the object of your worship, of course, is the God who is light. And so David says, one thing I've asked from the Lord. And not only have I asked him, I'm gonna do what? I'm gonna seek it. Sometimes what we do is we, you know, like uh, when Moses is praying and, and God says to Moses, uh, what are you doing praying? Move forward, right? The sea's open, man. All right, you, you've prayed, now go. And Jesus says in Matthew 7, 7, ask, seek, and knock. And the door will be opened. See, a lot of us Christians are good at asking. We're not so good at seeking. And we certainly aren't very good at knocking. But there is a progression, even in how Jesus taught us to pray. Ask, seek, knock. God wants you to seek him. He says, so I'm gonna ask. I've asked the Lord and I'll seek it that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, in Psalm 23, verse 6, David said, uh, Surely I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think that's more like a thought of heaven. Here, it's all the days of my life. So here, it's, it's the idea that this is possible in my earthly pilgrimage to behold, middle of four, or gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple or At this point, it would be more specifically his tabernacle. David wanted to build the temple, but Solomon was the one who built it. Worship is to draw near, especially, you could say, in times of difficulty. Paul writes from prison in Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, what will it do? It will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's anything excellency, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. It's all about your focus, it's all about what you seek. Worship is to draw near. It's to say, Lord, I want to gaze on your beauty. Now, some of you, you see verses like this and you're like, oh, all right, wait, wait a minute. Blueprints, please. Because how do you gaze on the beauty of one who is a spirit? And if there is no temple here and there was kind of a, a moving tabernacle at the time, how is it that David, who wasn't a priest, would find himself gazing on the beauty of the Lord? How, what does that look like? How do you find the face of God? Because you're going to see here that David is going to say that God wants us to seek his face. God is the ultimate beauty in the universe. Notice he says, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. You know, beauty uh, is, is something that's such an uh, incredible thing. Uh, the, I think it was last night or the night before, someone was pointing out the sky. And uh, I don't know if you guys saw the sky the other night, but it was uh, this incredible uh, sunset. And it was hard to take your eyes off of it because the sun was streaming through these cloud formations and it was kind of like shooting off here and there and the colors were brilliant. And I was trying to take a picture with my little phone and then I took some video of it. It never does it justice, right? Right. But the Lord is the beautiful one. He's the most beautiful being in the universe. And I think that for us as Christians, us appreciating the beauty in nature. uh, I remember uh, some years ago, I had a chance to speak at a uh, men's conference. And I was talking about how God is seen in creation that uh, you know, in the universe that he made, day after day it pours forth speech; night after night it displays knowledge. That God can be seen in what He made. And I said, you know what's interesting? I said, we can see God in the stars, and in the sun, and the moon, and perhaps a snow-capped mountain, or a beautiful bird. Or I remember I was at a—I think I was at a golf course recently, and I saw this beautiful blue jay. Its color was so bright. And beautiful. And I said, okay. It was a men's conference. I said, I want you to think of a beautiful woman. Hopefully it's your wife. Don't lust. But God has made some beautiful creatures, has he not? And an appreciation of beauty is okay. You don't want to cross the line as a man. And we got to be careful here, right? Or as a woman. But God has made an incredibly beautiful world and it's an extension of his beauty. Take this in the best sense, okay? The world is an extension of his beauty. His splendor is on display. In the book of Ruth, uh, Naomi is one of the main characters. And her name, her name uh, connects with the root word for beauty. Naomi means pleasant. But remember, as the story goes on, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore, call me Mara, which means what? bitter because I've had a lot of bitterness in my life but her name actually means pleasant and that's what the idea of beauty is here and here's the implication whenever you draw near to God you are going to find pleasantness you're going to find beauty when you gaze upon the Lord all the cares of the world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and praise and grace amen See, this is what God wants you to do. The old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim. See, this is what we need. This is what worship is. And people who have found how to worship God, even, you know, you can have two different people who will get in their vehicle tonight and one will be walking with the Lord and one may not. There'll be a bunch of people who wake up in this city tomorrow morning. Some will be worshipers of God and some will not. And it's not that God is not available to all of us and to all believers. It will be whether or not you decide or, and I decide to seek his face. One experience I'll tell you that I had some years ago I believe that the spiritual gifts are for today and the gift of tongues is a mystery to me. And I, I know that there's a lot of people who fake it and a lot of people who abuse it and it's out of order, but I, I have heard it done in order where it's beautiful. And so one night I was laying on my bed and I, and I just was praying and I just said, Lord, I'm just seeking your face right now. I wanna know you. I wanna know you. I don't wanna play church I don't want to go through the motions. I want to know you. And there was something that came in my mind. It wasn't even verbally out of my lips that I believe was a gift of language from God. And I tell you, it startled me. It's the one time it's ever I could say, genuinely, I know it happened in my life. It startled me. I was like, whoa, that was not from me. What was that? I don't even know what it meant. But I felt like the Lord just gave me a little taste of I am here. I know you. I know your name. I know your heart. And because you decided to seek me, I let you find me because I'm not far. You know, in Acts 17, when Paul's preaching up on Mars Hill and he is addressing the people of Athens, Greece, he says, you know, God is not far from each one of and he said that really to a group of pagan philosophers. God, God is nearer than we think. You know, this whole, the dimensions in which we live and how heaven works and how God can be omnipresent, these are some pretty radical ideas. They're hard for the human mind to understand. And there's, I've heard people talk about dimensions and that kind of thing. But somehow God in his power and in, and in his omnipresence can hear a prayer of a guy in Corona, California who's just saying, Lord, I want to know you. I don't get how he could hear my prayer and your prayer at the same time, but he does. And he touched me back. And it was as if he said, Michael, I know you, and you know me. And that's really all that matters in the end. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know the sender and the sent one. The sent one is the visible manifestation of the invisible God. That verse is not saying that Jesus is not God. It's just saying that you need to know the sender through the sent one, God in human flesh. Amen? This one thing is what we need Splendor and majesty are before him, Psalm 96.6. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. He is beautiful. Everything in his temple says glory, glory, glory. I tell you, this world can be an ugly place. I know we had a vice presidential debate tonight. I, I saw a little bit of it before I came in here. Uh, you, some of you saw the presidential debate Some of you have... I've had a lot of people tell me... And can you guys check the air in the back? You might want to flip the air on, Nathan. Nathan, can you hear me now? I think we need the air condition flipped on. Thank you. I'm not preaching on hell, otherwise we'd be good. (laughs) Or the day of the Lord or anything like that. I've had a lot of people tell me that they've gotten off of Facebook. That they... I've had several people tell me in the last week or two, I'm no longer on social media. And I was like, why? Well, it's just getting ugly. (laughs) It's getting ugly, right? It can be a very ugly world. People can be very ugly. And the only way to combat that is to turn your eyes to the beautiful one. He is beautiful. This world can be ugly. Um, When my wife and I got married, we chose a couple songs for our first dance. And uh, one of them was, uh, What a Beautiful World. And, you know, I think the more you walk with God, the more you can see beauty in people that maybe you lacked. Amen? (laughs) When you're walking in the flesh, it's very difficult. But the more you have the light of the Lord, the more you can see people through his eyes, which is beautiful. I was mentioning my wife and I because our first dance was, uh, what a beautiful world. Oh, yeah. Anyway. For in the day of trouble, 5, Psalm 27, he, God, will conceal me in his tabernacle. When I, I have my gaze on him, here's what happens. In the secret place, you can write down Psalm 91:1 of his tent he will hide me. He will lift me up on a rock. And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies or my circumstances you might say around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. We offer God the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. Hebrews 13:15. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Now, David gives us another clue. He says, once you've turned your eyes to the Lord and you and he's touched you back, now you might break into some song because after all, the psalms are songs anyway. And you come into church, and sometimes you come into church and you're a little bit in the flesh and a little bit cranky, and you just don't even know if you want to be in worship. I remember hearing Begg, He said he walked into a church, I think it was in California. And he said he slipped into the back row, and he just needed to hear from the Lord. And the worship leader came out, and I'm not saying that this is always wrong, but he came out. It was early in the morning. He said he was cranky. He was kind of in the flesh. Here he is, Pastor Alistair Begg. And he said, and the worship leader came out and said, good morning. How's everybody doing? Uh And have you ever had a morning where you're like, don't ask me that question. And and he said, you know, if you really want to know how I'm doing, I'd like to kick the dog and scream and yell and whine. He said, but the moment that the music turned his gaze to God, all of that stuff melted away. That's what we find in worship. That's why we need to be walking in the Spirit so that he can lift us up above our enemies, above all those things that bug us, Psalm 121, 1 and 2, I will lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lord is good. Nahum 1, 7, a stronghold in the day of battle. He knows those who take refuge in him. So David says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices. I will give shouts of joy. Remember the backdrop of the psalm. If this is what it is, David had a lot to be bummed about, but he he spoke to his own heart. I will sing Yes, end of six, I will sing praises to the Lord. It's going to change my heart. Hear, O Lord, when I cry, seven, with my voice. Be gracious to me and answer me. When thou didst say, seek my face, my heart said to thee, thy face, O Lord, I shall seek. Hear me when I cry, be gracious to me. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, full of mercy. And the Lord has an instruction for David. He says, seek my face and it's for you and me too. God says seek my face. And I was curious. I've read this many times and I wondered where has God ever said seek my face? And it struck me and it's in 2 Chronicles 7 it's, this is one place and it's a verse that's being quoted everywhere. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. If they will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. God calls you and me to seek his face. Now I'm still... I threw out the question about the mechanics of that, but I think we're all starting to get it because this is a spiritual endeavor. When someone is physically in front of me, and I I gave the illustration recently of my wife, if I were to hold my wife's face and look into her eyes, that's a physical encounter, and that that can be a very beautiful thing, uh, a relational intimacy kind of thing. But how does one do that spiritually? How, how do I see God's face? Because he's spirit. Now Jesus isn't walking the planet physically anymore. Some people had that chance to look into the face of the Messiah. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you like to have had experience that? Some people probably didn't appreciate that. And one day you will see his face, praise God. And that's coming. But how do we do it spiritually now? How do we draw near? What does it mean to seek God's face? Well, I think that one of the main ways that you seek God's face is to slow down and turn your eyes to prayer and his word, to worship. You're the one that lifts my head. Even though I haven't seen him, I love him. And I know I'm gonna see him. And so sometimes I have to Ask the Lord to teach my eyes to see beyond the physical. Everybody with me? Teach my eyes to have 20-20 spiritually speaking. Enlighten my eyes to see you in the little and big things. Teach me what it means to walk in the Spirit. Teach me how to abide. Teach me how to turn to your word and turn to prayer when my temptation is to do everything but that. You know, uh, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. God wants you to seek him. You know, Some of us are really good at seeking after the things that we want to get done, and we won't quit until it's done. Some of you are like, man, you're on it. And whatever you want to really accomplish, you get it done. But Bible study for some of you? (laughs) Worship and prayer and praise could be more difficult. Isn't it challenging sometimes to be alone and have 17 different things on your plate and say, you know what, I'm just going to drop to my knees and pray? And, you know, somebody wrote a book, I'm Too Busy Not to Pray. So the psalm is winding down, but a little bit more for us to look at. He says, don't hide your face from me. When I when I seek your face, please don't hide it from me. Don't turn away. Do not turn thy servant away in anger. Thou hast been my help. Don't abandon me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. This is a cry. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but... The Lord, please notice, friend, brother, sister, the Lord will take me up. Sometimes forsaking us and hiding and turning away is what people do. It could be really hard if your mom and dad did it to you. I know a lot of us have abandonment issues. <laughs> and I'm not trying to make light of that, but that's kind of the phrase out there. But if you were abandoned by the people that you should have trusted the most, it really hurts. And if you've ever tried to reach out to someone and they turned away from you, you ever had someone turn their back to you? Ooh, That's a tough one. You ever try to get your, uh, someone's attention that was really important to you and they turned away? They wouldn't give you their attention. They wouldn't give you their face. It's painful. But David says of God, even for my mother and my, my Father and my mother have forsaken me, and I don't know how to take that specifically, but let's just say if that were to happen, let's just say if you were abandoned. You know, a lot of the pain in our lives comes from abandonment or hurt or wounds. And David says, if I were forsaken by those two who should be the most faithful to us, right, the Lord will take me up. It's as if he's saying, you know, Lord, that's what people do, but please don't you do that. Because if you were to turn away from me, I, I don't know what I would do. And Jesus says in the New Testament, anyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come. Anyone who will come to Jesus, he will not turn away. Anyone who will come in humility, no matter who they may be, tax collector, prostitute, etc., he will not turn away. So David says, teach me your way, O Lord. 11, lead me in a level path because of my foes. Do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. And then these two verses. I would have despaired... I would have been afraid. I would have broken. I may have lost hope unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. This is just simply a statement of faith. After he says, teach me, don't deliver me over, help me to walk on a level path, he said, I would have despaired. I could have been overwhelmed by fear unless I had what? Believed. See, David was a man of faith. He was a man of action, but he was a man of faith. Unless I believed, unless I believed that Dog and his group wouldn't overtake me. Unless I believed when I was younger that Goliath, as big and as intimidating as he may be, was nothing compared to the power of the living God. Do you still believe that that same God's alive and well today in your life and circumstances? Unless David had said, you know what? I know Saul wants to kill me and he, he's thrown a couple of spears at me at the dinner table. But I believe that God has a good plan for my life and I believe he won't abandon me. And Absalom, who tried to take the throne away, even though it broke David's heart, Absalom ended up seeing his own demise because David was God's man. And you are God's child. I would have despaired I would have lost all hope unless I had believed. I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I would say for the Christian, uh, Bible verses are important to uh, continue to meditate on. But there's a little positivity here. If the backdrop of the story is Dog and his lies and he just killed 85 priests and destroyed this village and David is in despair, how could he say this? How could he not be stuck? But yet he trusts in the Lord. And so the final verse says, wait for the Lord. The Hebrew word could be translated wait or hope. And you could write down Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. Mount up with wings like eagles. Here it could be rendered hope in the Lord or wait for the Lord. And then be strong. Let your heart take courage. Yes, All God's people said, wait or hope for the Lord or wait or hope in the Lord. Lord God, thank you for your living word. It is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Thank you that we can have confidence in our God. And thank you that right now we can seek your holy face and you will be found in the secret place. What's amazing is that there's no longer a physical temple. We are the temple of the living God. And the moment that we decide to seek you, you're already here. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And it's amazing how we could live a day or several days or weeks or months where we would have very little communion with you. Lord, teach us how to commune with you how to know that you live in us and all we simply have to do is say, Lord Jesus, take the reins, fix my eyes fresh upon you. Help me to hope in you. Help me to know that you have good for me. Speak to my heart. Show me the way. Lead me in the level path. Lord, teach us how to follow you and how to worship you. Thank you for the faithful worshipers who have come out tonight. Thank you for those who have joined us via live stream. Would you bless them, keep them, Let your beautiful face shine upon them and give them shalom. In Christ's name I pray.